0: I think every generation has an anxiety about how the next generation is going to turn out. That's part of parenting. And certainly the Catholic university that I went to, that we went to, was considered a diminished thing by people who'd gone there a generation earlier. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't believe that uh, we weren't either wearing gowns or speaking Latin Mm -hmm. or taking Mm -hmm. such and such a book or that crucifix wasn't on every wall. And yet here we are. It somehow worked out. Uh, So just worth keeping in mind. That was Paul Eli.
1: Paul is a senior fellow with the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University and a contributing writer for The New Yorker. His work has appeared in numerous magazines, including Commonweal, and he's also the author of The Life You Save May Be Your Own, An American Pilgrimage. Paul and I talked about the topics he's been writing and thinking about now, from Catholicism and the Biden presidency to the Vatican's remarks on same-sex unions, to generational shifts in American Catholicism. Our conversation follows in a minute. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Paul. Uh, Thanks for being with us here today. Uh, Pleasure to join, Dominic. I'm really glad to be a guest. So I want to get right into things writing in The New Yorker back in January, soon after the inauguration, you raised the question of what Joe Biden could do for American Catholicism. Could he save it from the far right, for example? And you said the hope is that the Biden administration will invigorate American Catholicism and vice versa. So now we're past the 100-day mark. How would you assess things? Do you sense that invigoration that you wrote about? Or or if not, why not?
0: Well, first of all, it's important to point out that In putting things the way I put them there, I was essentially summarizing the state of play and the way others had framed their expectations for Biden, including Massimo Fagioli with an entire book about Biden's Catholicism. So the hopes of other people that he would invigorate Catholicism or invigorate liberal democracy were set up to what then became my own position. And my own position in the piece was that he had various opportunities, various ways in which he could draw on his Catholicism. One was to use Catholic vocabulary and symbolism to move to the center and bring instinctual Republicans who are put off by Trump into a kind of vital center. The other is that he could use the progressivism of Pope Francis on climate and lots of other positions to justify progressive views that he would take. And then I posited a third way, which would paradoxically combine the two. And that one, basically, the idea was that Pope Francis has used his temperamental moderation in order to advance progressive positions within the church. And I propose that Biden could do something like the same. And I think that's what he's done. Let me just read the passage from the piece because I think it uh, holds up reasonably well. He could take an approach rooted in both Francis' pontificate and his own, Biden's, career. Paradoxically, the Pope's moderate temperament and reputation have served to advance his progressive positions. In the same way, Biden's record as a centrist and his profile as a him-quoting churchgoer could give him cover as he tax left, much as Francis has, using the language of the common good to advance policies, refreshed infrastructure, a green jobs program, health care for all, that would actually benefit the disaffected whites in the heartland who are presently hooked on Trump. Strong employment, social stability, and a government seen acting concretely for the common good would help bring about national reconciliation with a Franciscan, that is, with a Catholic accent.
1: You've done a number of pieces in the New Yorker on Pope Francis as well. And I want to take up a piece that you wrote in March. And th- this followed some news that developed about women in the church. And, and you asked whether the Vatican is finally ready to get serious about women in the church. And you used as your hook, not just Pope Francis's actions on formally acknowledging the roles of female acolytes and servers, but also the appointment of a young nun, a sister, Natalie Beckhart, as an undersecretary of the Vatican Synod of Bishops. And you said there's any time there's an exception like this to the pervasive state of things. It's taken as an augury that." The change is finally at hand. And could you say now whether you think that change is at hand? What do you think is significant about this appointment? And is the Vatican, in your opinion, finally getting serious?
0: I think every appointment of a woman to a significant position at the Vatican is significant. The director of the Vatican Museum is another example. And Sister Natalie, who's born in 1969, I guess she's young by Vatican standards. Mm -hmm. She's very experienced and very qualified and just seems like an ideal person to do what she's been tasked to do in the church. So every appointment is a step forward. That said, and I tried to bring this out in the piece, canon law and the structure of the Curia, whose reform we are still awaiting after years and years, reserve really the preponderance of positions of authority in the church, in Rome especially, for ordained people. So that's going to be ordained men in the current disposition. So there's a wing of moderate to progressive Catholics in the church who would argue, look, if the cultural left would just back off on the idea of women's ordination, we could move on women deacons and make progress that's deeply historically rooted in the church. I I have to push against that because Mm -hmm. what we see from the structure of the church is that without ordination, there's very little in the way of positions of power and authority available to women, so unless the church is ready to get serious about ordaining women it 's not ready to get serious about ordaining women in the church.
1: I don't want to put you in a position of having to predict or prognosticate or anything like that, but you also you call on Joe Biden at this point too to, to name a woman as Vatican ambassador and I'm wondering if you have any particular candidates in mind or who you think would be a good choice if it came to that.
0: I had a candidate in mind at the time that 's no longer going to work out, but National Catholic reporter. Uh, ran a piece with a whole, an omnium gathering of of prospective appointees, a number of them are women, a number of them I know a little bit, they're all impressively qualified. And so it seems clear that Biden can, even if he were to say, I am going to choose a woman, he would have a number of really extraordinary qualified women in that group uh, to choose from. There was more news this
1: uh, spring, too, from the Vatican, and you took this up as well, which was the the CDF's statement on same-sex unions. God does not and cannot bless sin. The church cannot bless same-sex unions. And even the positive elements in same-sex unions uh, cannot justify these relationships. And you you described the language as sort of this absolute language, which in particular seems to run counter to Francis's emphasis on mercy. And I even wonder if this kind of, you used the phrase a moment ago about Francis's uh, temperamental moderation. And you said it runs counter to, to his emphasis on mercy, writing that there doesn't seem to be a clear path forward from the statement that, com- that came out. That statement hovers over the lives of LGBTQ Catholics, you wrote. So I guess Do you see a path ever emerging at this point? And I wonder, too, what does it say that Francis seems to want a path, but that he appears to be thwarted in some ways by his own CDF?
0: Well, I wrote the piece in part to push against the idea that Francis wants a path and is being thwarted by the CDF. That's the view that was put out, especially by Jerry O'Connell in America and on Mm -hmm. his podcast. Uh, He complained that the treatment of the pope was very unfair. Look, he's the Pope. He's in charge of the church. He's in charge of the Vatican. He's in charge of the CDF. He appointed the prefect of the CDF. He's not in this pandemic moment unusually busy. The document that was put out was a thousand words long. It's his business to see it. He would be immediately aware of its implications. And it falls to him to act or to not act on these occasions. It's on him. And the idea that this, if this was smuggled in around him, then we have uh, very great things to worry about because it would really suggest that Pope Francis is not on top of things at the Vatican at all. The question then is, uh, why would this statement come out that's so clearly at odds with his position? We are a bit stuck now. We don't know what Francis' position is. In an earlier piece, I wrote about Francis as an incrementalist. I had in mind something that a professor of mine at Fordham said. I don't remember which professor it was. He said, and he quoted this as a kind of working maxim for people in the church, go slowly, but go. So if Francis is going slowly on the embrace and acceptance of gay people as they are in the church, then an incremental approach makes sense. Move here with a quote in a movie move here through some synodal structures, move here through a tone such as the tone that he took, which was obviously so warm in the who am I to judge comment. Hmm. But if there's no intention of moving, and that's what the CDS statement seemed to suggest, then that kind of incrementalism doesn't make any sense at all. Do I think there's a path forward? definitely, because I think it's the right thing to do. And I think the church usually does the right thing. It often does the right thing too late. But this is an instance in which the full embrace of gay people as they are makes sense in terms of the gospel. And I would say in terms of the history of the church, it's sad to think that it's going to fall to a next pope to do this, but that's the way it looks to me. Mm. Is there anything that gives you particular hope now when you say, well, the church
1: does the right thing, but I guess, so what's happening that you could point to what's visible now where you think there's a, a, a path forward?
0: So on the embrace of gay people in the church, just the fact that the response to the document was so strong and fairly widespread, not all the way across the Catholic spectrum, but much wider than it was, let's say, in 1986, when the CDF came out with its statement on the pastoral care of homosexual persons using the expression of disordered and on the way to an intrinsic moral evil. So, for example, and I quoted this in the article, Cardinal Dolan on his podcast referred really venomously, in my view, to the cause of the full acceptance of gay people as the chic cause du jour. And I would say that Cardinal Dolan is in an embarrassing minority position now, even within the church. And that, to me, is a great sign of progress. (laughs) (laughs) Let me pick up a different theme, though. I was talking with Father Jim Martin about these issues, and what I came to feel was just how... There's a possibility for these problems to be approached sacramentally and imaginatively that hasn't been explored yet. A couple of years ago, I reviewed for the New Yorker a long novel called The Catholic School by Eduardo Albinati. And late in this very long book, the well-fallen away uh, Catholic is visited in an apartment in Rome by a priest who's making the annual visit to the apartments and houses of the neighborhood to bless them. I think it's in connection with Holy Week there would be a way for priests to bless the houses of people living in same-sex unions, to pay a call, to break bread, to have a drink, to visit, to say grace, to bless the food. There, there's all sorts of ways sacramentally that the church can broaden its embrace to gay people without waiting for the Pope or the CDF to do it. And I frankly hope that, that there are priests listening to this podcast who, who will take that up.
1: I want to switch to something else. We're here, we're doing this recording in in the second week of May of 2021. And and many are noting that it's the the fifth anniversary of the death of Daniel Berrigan. And in fact, you're among those who's written a piece marking the occasion. And I wonder if in addition to sharing some of your reflections about Berrigan himself, you could talk a little bit about what this might say about the state of the kind of Catholicism we associate with Berrigan. Is it odd that we're marking an anniversary of a death in a way that maybe suggests, well, the absence of such a visible figure or movement that we could instead be focusing on.
0: When Father Berrigan died, I wrote a piece for the New Yorker, which I likened him to The Last of the Fathers. That's a, an appellation that's associated with Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, and especially for English language readers through Thomas Merton's book about him, The Last of the Fathers. So I liken Berrigan to the last of these um, giants who walked the earth in the mid-century Vatican II generation, a number of whom figured into the book that I wrote, The Life You Saved May Be Your Own, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Walker Percy, Flannery O'Connor, others would mention um, John Courtney Murray, there's plenty of others. I tried to address this some years ago in a piece that was also published in Commonweal under the title What Flannery Knew. But the idea, which is something else I picked up at Fordham, is that you can identify in cultural life, critical ages and creative ages. This was Matthew Arnold in one of his literary essays from the 19th century. He thought the era of Wordsworth and Dickens was a creative age, and that he was in the generation afterwards, a critical age whose role or vocation it was to assess what had happened in that creative age just before and consolidate to make sense of it what i felt then this was over 10 years ago now was that you and i and people of our catholic generation are in a critical generation who for whatever reason it falls to us to assess that creative age and what happened back there hmm. the question then always arises well at what point does this critical work that we're doing engender in a new creative age and Many people have awaited that. I think it's important not to scant the fact that even as we lament the loss of Dan Berrigan and the people of his prominence, the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 undertook tif- a significant action in Georgia at a particularly grave moment in the Trump administration, and a number of them are now in jail for doing mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons we don't more, know more about them is because maybe not enough attention was paid. Mm-hmm. I wrote about it in the New Yorker. I didn't um, see as much coverage as I would have expected. So the more we can pay attention to those efforts, the more we'll know the, the life and, and action of someone like Carmen Trata and what he's done You know, over a third of a century to carry forward the legacy of Dorothy Day and Daniel Berrigan. Carmen Trata is one of the King's Bay Plowshares Seven, and he's now in prison for the action that they undertook in Georgia. And he, he's been associated with a Catholic worker in the East Village since the 80s. He came to know Daniel Berrigan very well. He's thoroughly well-versed in not only the works of Dorothy Day, but the nonviolent movement in the United States and abroad really over a century. And this was the first time he took part in a Appliature's Action, but there's a lifelong commitment that he's lived out day to day on the streets of New York. And in protests and such like, that's represented by that action. And when we ask where are the Daniel Barigans of today, it's a category mistake. We we should say where are the people who are living lives of integrity and nonviolence today, and then uh, see where we find them.
1: Thank you for listening to the Commonweal podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please spread the word and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Thanks in advance for your support. I want to go back a bit because you you mentioned the book, The Catholic School by Eduardo uh, Albanani. and I thought there was something, this is a review that you wrote on, I guess it's probably about two years ago now when the book came out. It's a long book, and you you kind of write about the length of it. And you also pose the question of just why it's called The Catholic School, since the author was never really a fervent believer. But but you write, all the same, Catholicism is a subject that Albinati cherishes. For him, as for many fallen away Catholics, the further he gets from his Catholic upbringing, the more he has to say about it. In fact, the very length of the book suggests how hard it can be for such a man uh, to shed such an upbringing, even in supposedly secular contemporary Italy. He can't just get rid of it once and for all. And I like how you you, you put that. It's very resonant. He has to assert his freedom from it again and again. And I'm, I'm curious about how you came to this conclusion, and I'm also wondering how else and where else you see this phenomenon manifesting itself. I understand it to be a recognizable phenomenon myself. So when you see it, whether it's other writers or public figures, or even uh, maybe in ordinary people, for instance, I have acquaintances and even family members who profess to have never been fervent believers, who have professed to left, and yet, they just can't seem to fully leave. They have to keep re-engaging. They keep having to take up debates and, and arguments and, and and stay connected somehow. So I want to get more of your thoughts on that, because I just think it's an interesting observation you made in that review.
0: Well, thanks for asking, because that review, because of the length of the book, which I read twice, 1200 <laughs> pages, was a very involving project. I carried the giant book on two different trips to Italy at the bottom of my backpack, like one of those bricks that you used to have to dive to the bottom of the swimming pool to pull up to pass some lesson and get your badge. (laughs) That's what the book felt like. But there's a couple of things to say here. And one is that my approach really over a couple of decades now has been just look to literature. So when we're thinking about Catholic Stuff, we tend to maybe look at other Catholic writers or see what Gary Will said or Peter Steinfels or Richard John Newhouse. And my instinct is well, what does literature have to tell us? So in this case, I looked to Nathaniel Hawthorne, who had written about the um, legacy of the Puritans. And the way, as Henry James put it, Hawthorne faced the choice of either laboring under the yoke of a Puritan inheritance throwing off the yoke in a dramatic way or transmuting it into art, which was the approach that Hawthorne chose. Thinking about that in terms of Albinati, I was reminded of something else that Hawthorne said, I'm not sure where, maybe in the introduction in the Custom House piece, that's a standalone piece that's also an introduction, that he became more fascinated with his Puritan forebears the farther away he was from them and the less literal their claim on him was. So there's something of that going on mm. in the work of a writer like Albanati and plenty of Catholic writers that the old world that's literally left behind then becomes um, figurative material and is transformed imaginatively. Mm. But more to the point, I think Albanati, who was born in 1956, is a very late exponent of pre-Vatican II Catholic sensibility. And for my parents and for people I met, um, going to school in New York. The hangover of preconciliar Catholicism was so strong, a memory that could never be erased. And a lot of that's being worked out in Abenadi's uh, book, Preconciliar Catholicism and the incredibly strong hold it had on people. I'm interested to see whether, for people of our generation, I'm 55 and younger, whether Catholicism still has that kind of hold as people move further and further away from it, I suspect and even fear not that it's much more easily let go of um, by people from the post-conciliar generations.
1: Mm. Well, so this
0: actually leads to another question, too,
1: because you and I have talked a little bit offline about this. We both have children, I think, roughly around the same age, sort of college age. Is that right? I have twin sons in college and a third who's 16. Yeah, okay. So same here. Well, no, I don't have twin sons and a kid who's 16. Uh, But I have a a recent college grad and a daughter who's 17. Uh, The college grad's a son. But I guess, too, I have a daughter who's going to be attending a Catholic college next fall. And I'll say that she's not necessarily interested in the fact that it's a Catholic college. It's a college that happens to be Catholic. I just wonder what happens with this next generation. It's a big question, obviously, but I wonder if you have any thoughts or anything that, even just from raising your own kids, how you sort of approach this idea.
0: Well, I've thought about it plenty. I'm not sure my thoughts have had definite practical effects, but the first thing that has to be said is that we're raising our children in light of, or in the shadow of a crisis of priestly sexual abuse, I don't even like the word crisis, over the revelation of decades of priestly sexual abuse in this country and abroad. That had pervaded my sense of family life over the past 15 or 20 years, because every long-held assumption about the church as in loco parentis or a Catholic priests and male lay people as authority figures to whom we might entrust your children and who in some way presume to know better than you about certain things, those things were turned upside down. And then to watch so many clerics in the name of leadership speak evasively and, and presume the hold that the church has on people while trying to split the difference like lawyers about who's responsible for priestly sexual abuse and the cover up by the bishops. I don't know if the hierarchy really understands the incredible negative charge that the sexual abuse crisis has had on every aspect of family life for people in the Catholic milieu. Just, it's, it's so pervasive. The second thing to say is that I think every generation has an anxiety about how the next generation is going to turn out. That's part of parenting. And certainly the Catholic university that I went to, that we went to, was considered a diminished thing by people who'd gone there a generation earlier. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't believe that uh, we weren't either wearing gowns or speaking Latin Mm -hmm. or taking Mm -hmm. such and such a book or that crucifix wasn't on every wall And yet, here we are. It somehow worked out. Uh, So just worth keeping in mind. When I was working in publishing, I edited the memoirs of Bishop Paul Moore, the Episcopal Bishop of New York, who early in his career, had he and his wife had nine children, and they were working in what was then called an inner-city church in Jersey City in the rectory, kids everywhere. Mm -hmm. And Dorothy Day paid them a visit. And he and his wife were profusely apologetic about the shambles the place was in and the kids were misbehaving and they were running everywhere because this this living saint had walked into the place. And she just paused and said, according to Bishop Moore, clearly and firmly and with great authority, lower your standards. (laughs) And I kept that in mind a lot <laughs> at points as a parent. If Dorothy Day is willing to say lower your standards, there's something to be learned from that.
1: <laughs> That's good.
0: You know, I, I, I want to uh, uh,
1: get to something, too, because you've written recently about an after effect of the pandemic with all of us getting used to Zoom and, and the role of technology and, and the, the sort of emergence of facial recognition technology as a mode of surveillance, as a mode of, a mode of potential law enforcement. This is just one outgrowth of what life under a pandemic over 18 months or so has been. And I want you to pick up a little bit on that too, if you could, about just, uh, what do you think we've learned, I guess, in maybe the past uh, 18 months or so? And how do you see us coming out of this I know this is a very, it sounds like a very vague question, but you had some thoughts in your piece. And then also I I, I want to tie it to what we were just saying about maybe raising children during this time. If we think about their social and mental health and their resilience, it's it's an open-ended question. It's a vague question, a general question, but maybe you could just give some thoughts on those ideas I raised.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that piece. Teenage self assertion or slash rebellion has taken different forms in different eras long hair, music, in some generations, you know, joining the army, in other generations. Mm-hmm. In this generation, I'm th- thinking pre pandemic, what we all felt and what we felt with a kind of fear was that what independence meant for young people today was the wish to be left literally to their own devices, just to be left alone on working a phone or playing a video game or whatever. And I tut-tutted as much as anybody about that. And then here we are as a society jumping onto our devices all day during the pandemic. On some basic level, we can just see that some of our moralizing was either unfounded or a little bit of kind of physician heal thyself. If we really believed that devices were so noxious, we would be a great deal less hesitant to live the way we've lived the last year, putting class on Zoom, mass on Zoom, and so much else on Zoom. We would have just said no. The fact that we've gone along with it meant our kids were kind of right on this. Mm -hmm. It's not going to totally corrode us to look at our screens for so large part of the day. But for me, what I see just walking around New York in the pandemic is how many small things have changed that, we used to think couldn't be changed you know when rudolph giuliani rudy giuliani was mayor the suggestion was that if you had sidewalk cafes and people double parking in the streets that that augured a total breakdown of the social order so you needed to have a vigorous police presence and ticket everybody's car and write a citation for every restaurant that had a table out in the street or else new york was going to fall apart Well, now there's tables everywhere. The parking is pretty crazy as a result of all these sheds that have been built. And we're muddling through. Mm -hmm. The point I'm trying to make is that we can make changes without worrying about the center holding. Mm -hmm. And that should embolden us to make a lot of other smaller changes that people historically resist making because they think, well, if, if you make that small change, you go down the slippery slope to perdition. We're still here, and lots has changed, so we should get ready to make some of the other basic changes that uh, could be made in our society without being so hesitant.
1: Paul Eli, thank you so much for being with us here today. Enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, I got so much out of it.
0: Okay, take
1: care now. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek, and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.